The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. Those are the words from the unlikely pen, I think, of the 19th century nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. I say unlikely because Nietzsche's long obedience, if there was one, um, was to the radical implications of atheism, which led, in his case, to breakdown and death in miserable seclusion. But the idea has been uh, appropriated over the years, many times, by Christians. For instance, Eugene Peterson, the Christian author, called one of his books a long obedience in the same direction. At the beginning of it, he wrote this. The persons whom I lead in worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach and teach, want short cuts. They want me to help them fill out the form that will get them instant credit in eternity. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But a pastor is not a tour guide. I have no interest in telling apocryphal religious stories at and around dubiously identified sacred sites. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. I want to echo Eugene Peterson. I'm not a tour guide. Dan Steele was not appointed as the concierge in Hotel Magdalen Road. I don't think anyone's actually living under that uh, misapprehension here, but all of us at times find ourselves wishing it was so, find ourselves longing that, that someone could just tell us, a, 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 give us a few quick tips for quick results, just, just, the, the, just the odd little shortcut uh, to give us a little bit of instant credit in, in eternity. Because everyone who has been a Christian for a while comes to a point sooner or later when they, when they realize, and it's a painful realization very often, that alongside the, the joy and the pleasure and the freedom that is a characteristic of, of Christianity. Being a Christian is also, also involves a great deal of hard slog. There are long-term battles with sin. There are Bible reading habits to maintain. There are duties in God's church. There are difficult relationships to navigate. We find ourselves asking um, with Christina Rossetti, does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole day long? From morn to night, my friend. We've been reading this, this, this book of Ezra asking one main question again and again. Does it, what does it take to revive the work of God in individuals' lives and in God's church in general? Because this book in part is answering that. It was written after Israel had failed, had gone into exile, and they are returning in fits and starts to the promised land, um, making efforts to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem, as uh, Dan was uh, uh, re- reminding us. 
But we have started to see this is actually quite an important moment in Israel's history. Not because they actually were able to rebuild that old kingdom of God of the past. They didn't. But because God was forming them through this process into being a new kingdom, a new city of God without walls, a new temple of God not made of stone. The kingdom of Israel was becoming the kingdom of God. The Jews were being refined to be ready to become the foundation of the church. And the lessons they were learning were hard won, but finally, as we read through the, 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 the Bible story, we find that when Jesus steps onto the stage, he has at least a, a germinal people prepared to be the foundation of a church. In chapter 1, we, we, we saw the first lesson that they, uh, uh, they learned was to trust God's providence. Israel was revived solely by the providential controlling hand of God as God moved the heart of Cyrus and enabled them to return. In chapter 3, we saw last week, Dan was reminding us, that far from going for security as they sought to re-establish themselves, they went for worship. Naked worship, in a sense, undefended worship. Simply standing and um, restoring their relationship with the living God. And all other things would come after that. Worship comes before building. But today, we must engage with the the sober reality that I've began uh, to talk about. It's a slight overstatement to say that every work of God is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, but it is not, but it is only a slight one. In the, the great 19th century missionary, William Carey, who, who had an inestimable influence on India in church planting and social reform and education and publishing and more and influenced the Western world so so much that he he became called the father of modern missions. Carey once described the skills that made him such a colossal figure in the 19th century church in this way. He said, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. In my decades as a Christian, I have seen plenty of Christians, you know, who have risen as stratospherically as one of Gandalf's fireworks and then crashed and burned. I've seen whole whole new church movements now that promised that they would revolutionize lives, even in this city that now lie in tatters. And I have become more and more content over the years to be identified as a plodder. And chapter, chapters 4 to 6 describe Israel's plodding. God's amazing work in Cyrus's heart is history. The, the tumultuous noise of the first feast day that they celebrated at the end of chapter 3, has subsided. And 
debilitating problems are starting to arise. And here is Israel plodding on. That's what we've got to look at today. And it is really very, very important. How does God's, do, do God's people keep going? How do they persevere? Well, first of all, they must learn to persevere with integrity. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. These people may have been obvious enemies, but, but not necessarily so. It may, may in fact only have unfolded in time. Um, uh, this this, uh, real hostility to them, to Israel, that arises. They may have been people who, to the best of their knowledge, were sincerely worshipping the God of Israel. What had happened is that when Israel was deported um, uh, generations before, what the Assyrian um, uh, nation had done is they had also moved other peoples into the land of Israel. Israel, and since it was popular understanding of those days that um, um, that there were gods of particular territories, then some of these people who moved into this territory decided, well, now they're here, they might as well worship this territorial god, and so they are perhaps even doing it to the best of their as best they could, worshiping this god Yahweh. They may have been genuinely excited that people were coming back to the land to t- give them a proper knowledge of this God, Yahweh. So the answer comes as something of a shock. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of, of Persia, commanded us. And that rejection is not primarily for ethnic reasons. You can see that if you glance forward to chapter 6 verse 12, we find that when the Passover was was finally celebrated, all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours came to worship, not just the exiles. Anyone who wanted to truly worship the God of Israel, was welcome to do so. The reason for the rejection of these people is that why Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other heads of the families spotted that their their intention was not really true. And that austere message to those who do not truly and humbly worship the God of Jesus Christ continues over into the New Testament. We have to take it seriously. For instance, in the New Testament, gross, persistent, unrepentant sin is not to be tolerated amongst God's people, says the Bible. Such people must be ultimately told, as these people were, you have no part with us. False teachers as well, particularly those 
who don't teach the essential, central truths about Jesus and salvation are to be separated from. There are, there are, of course, a thousand ways in which different Christians perhaps have different nuanced views on things. That the New Testament is very clear that there should be a, a, a large degree of toleration about all sorts of secondary things. But there are some central things, some key truths, not the ones that the newspapers are always talking about, um, uh, with the um, sex and just wars and those kinds of things but central truths about who Jesus is. Is he really fully God and fully man? Did he really, as God the Son, die on the cross for our sins? Did he really rise from the dead? Are we really put right with God simply through trusting this great um, uh, act of salvation? This great offer of forgiveness bought for us by Jesus. Those are central New Testament truths. And sadly, there are plenty of churches and church traditions that have moved away from those. I would love to say that we can be happily united with every, uh, every group that calls itself Christian. But the sad um, message of history, as I, said, uh, as, as I said briefly last week, is that from the earliest days there have been those who have denied those central things. For instance, um, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that people are, are not saved through their own, simply through their own faith in Christ. They're saved through the faith and ministry of the church, and so uh, others, priests, do it up to a point for them. And that has been recognized as dangerously, seriously misleading. If anyone is, is under, the, uh, under a false impression about that, you need to, to get that straight. It is your personal faith in Jesus Christ that is crucial and is central. And we as a church couldn't associate with any church that teaches anything else. Because it leads people astray to condemnation. Or, uh, or equally, the, 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 the liberal movement in the church. I so regret that they laid claim to that, that, that word liberal because, f- frankly, um, uh, in, in, in a thousand and one ways, I am a liberal and I am proud of, of being a liberal. I believe in being a liberal in the proper sense of the word, but that's what they call themselves, so we have to. The liberal movement, long ago moved away from fundamental foundational beliefs about Jesus. As the theologian Richard Niebuhr put it in the 1930s, they started to teach about a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a a Christ without a cross. And nothing much has changed. So we, we simply can't, with integrity, associate with groups that, that, that teach those things. In 2003, the um, formerly evangelical Christian leader and media personality, Steve Chalk, announced that he no longer believed the fundamental historic Christian teaching about the cross of Christ. And, uh, uh, and it meant that churches like ours had to say that we can no longer stand with Steve. That's been very painful. 
And more recently, some of you will know that he's, he's followed that up by questioning the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. And that, to be honest, is less serious than his previous um, uh, assertions, but it still warns us still further that he has moved away from the authority of Scripture. And we have to say to such people, you have no part with us. More recently in this country, it's been strong for, for, for generations elsewhere in the world, but in, in, in this country, a movement of churches um, uh, which tend to get called health and wealth churches has, has been growing. Their fundamental teaching is that Christianity is about getting rich and having a, a, a long life. I mean, try telling that to Jesus. Um, but, 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 but the importance of what they're doing is, is, is not just that they're in error. I might disagree with all sorts of uh, other good Christians who I'd want to associate with over politics and other things, for instance. But it's, it's how much those teachings draw people away from the central truths of Jesus and salvation. And the reality is that health and wealth churches, the prosperity gospel as some people like to call it, again and again, you find first, first marginalizes and then ignores central teachings about Jesus until finally they deny them. The old hymn described God's church as by schisms rent asunder and heresies distressed. And sadly, it has always been true. And putting little sticking plasters of, 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 of jolly friendliness, bland joint declarations, churches together movements and so on, do not heal those gaping wounds. Sometimes surgery is the only option to stop the spread of affection, uh, of infections. When God revives his work, it is always characterized by integrity. And let me say, it is possible to go overboard on that. It is possible to, to, to anathematize everyone who disagrees with us on anything. And wise Christians have always recognized that danger. They've always been cautious in separating themselves from others. There are plenty of, 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 of areas um, such as the role of charismatic gifts, the precise details of Christ's return, how you govern the church, and all of those kinds of things that we have over time learned to, to agree to disagree about in a friendly way across denominational uh, boundaries. And thank the Lord, Magdalen Road enjoys a, uh, um, a large number of interdenominational relationships uh, within Oxford, which are characterized by great warmth and commonality, because we've worked hard on that side of it. But when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to how do you get right with God, Christians, wise Christians have always recognized we cannot fudge. 
It doesn't also mean that we can't cooperate with the wider world on, on some areas. For instance, um, interestingly, if you read closely Ezra 4 to 6, you will find that the temple gets rebuilt using the um, resources from the treasuries of the Persian Empire. And as we consider um, purchasing a building this, uh, this year as, as a church, no doubt there will be um, uh, other outside groups to talk to and to, to consider how and if we can cooperate with them. That, that, that The Bible never gives a systematic no to those kinds of co- cooperation. But the question must always be there. Does this cooperation compromise our integrity as worshippers of Jesus Christ? Integrity is all as God's people stand in the world and witness to Jesus. The second thing we're going to learn from uh, this chapter um, which is very important, and unfortunately I couldn't really find another word other than the overall title. It is just this idea of persevering, of plodding. Verse 4, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus of king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, as a result of their integrity, of their clear stand, they had to accept that it actually aggravated people around them, that it always does, it always will. Christians shouldn't court problems, but we cannot avoid them. People get angry when we say, no, these truths are non-negotiable. And God's people easily find themselves wilting. We should not be people who are discouraged, as uh, um, that word in verse 4 means sort of going limp, becoming weak. Either corporately, as we stand for God, and face the issues. Over the last 15 years, we've faced a few. Over the next 15 years, if Magdalen Road sees God's blessing, if Magdalen Road maintains its integrity, I guarantee to you the opposition will be more acute, not less acute. And it will be very easy to become weary in doing good, as, as uh, Paul puts it. Will we become discouraged, weary? Will you become discouraged, weary, simply in the plot of your own life. You know, you wake up at, uh, uh, at, at 6.30, you can hardly open your eyes, you can hardly get your, your, your head off the pillow. Do you curl up in bed, turn over in bed and go, go to sleep again and miss your daily Bible reading? Or do you? Get out of bed. Splash a bit of cold water on your face. Get yourself a cup of coffee. Sit down and breakfast on the Word of God. How much steel is there in you? There is no doubt that your long-term fruitfulness will depend on that. 
And we need people. Uh, God's kingdom needs people who are not afraid. Did you see that? They tried to make them afraid to go on building. That, that was there in Ezra 3. Here it is again. The most common thing Jesus said to his disciples, do you know what it was? Do not be afraid. Are you afraid to speak of Christ at work? Are you afraid of confining your romantic interests only to Christians? Are you afraid of being identified as belonging to an evangelical church? Are you afraid to devote time and energy into helping uh, God's church to thrive rather than investing in other things that will make you feel more secure? Are you afraid? We need... People as well who are indomitable. People who, there will always be forces who, as uh, verse 5 says, are, 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 are trying to frustrate their plans. The campaign to abolish slavery led by evangelical, you know, evangelicals, I'm sure you remember from all the publicity at the time, was met by the most colossal opposition for decades. Enormous amounts of, of, of money and energy and propaganda was invested against the anti-slavery campaign to frustrate them. And William Wilberforce and others, they just kept on and on and on and on and on and they won. On a week-by-week, month-by-month, even sometimes year-by-year basis in my life, my ministry has been characterized by frustration. Ask my family. They're the ones who get the brunt of it, sadly. Frustration with myself, sometimes. My frustration that my, my change and my growth is so slow, and and frustration that things change at a glacial pace, in not only in this church, but in churches in general. But I have learned to plod. I, I may be discouraged, but I still crawl out of bed in the morning and I dedicate myself for another day to serving God. I may be afraid... And I am afraid sometimes, but I know that I must speak the truth about Jesus Christ. I may be frustrated, but God has taught me the value of this long obedience in the same direction. And so, actually, more than 30 years after I began my walk with God, I'm still here, thanks to the grace of God, and I look around overwhelmed with thankfulness at the fruit that God gives to plodders. Now, Israel had to learn to persevere in that steady way. Day after week after month after year after decade. And as a result of that long obedience in the same direction, a church was born which changed the world. And one more lesson that Israel was learning under this theme of perseverance. 
Um, she had to learn to work without power. Now, actually, um, it's the overwhelming part of this narrative in um, uh, Ezra 4 to 6. But if I gave it appropriate um, uh, time, I'm afraid you'd still be with me here till tomorrow. So we are going to abbreviate it to my enormous frustration, um, and not least that some of you have heard me on this kind of subject um, before. But let me point out what's going on in the rest of the Ezra 4 to 6. Verses 6 to 23 of Ezra 4... Um, uh, actually jumped through the reins of several kings in order to establish that this opposition that is mentioned in verses 4 and 5 lasted for generations, lasted through several uh, reigns. There's uh, um, an attempt to stop it under Xerxes in verse 6, and then a letter is set, sent to his successor, Artaxerxes, from verse 7 onwards of chapter 4. Uh, the opposition makes a sophisticated appeal to the emperor's pocket, verse 13. The king should know that if this city is built, Jerusalem that is, and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. And no um, uh, sovereign worth his salt can, uh, can have that threatened, as Gordon Brown always insisted. And so um, uh, uh, he stops it. And... The people, crucially, are powerless to do anything about it. You know, in the good old days um, of the past, Israel would have been raising an army. They would have been defeating these pagan inhabitants in their, in their land and, and exterminating them or throwing them out. And they would have been defending themselves against the, the, the might of the kingdom of Persia. But those, these are not those days. Is that, is that because God has, has made a mistake somehow? Is that because, is that because God has not yet come in power and they need to wait for Him to do that? Well, the, the witness of the rest of the Bible is not that. The witness of the rest of the Bible is that this is the beginnings of a massively important and positive turning point in the history of God's dealing with His world. God is now going to teach his people to win their victories through powerlessness. With all the frustration that that involves, it is the way that he's going to choose. Now this, this, this story of Israel is preparing them to meet Jesus, who stepped onto the earth and eschewed power. Who, when he was tempted by Satan to uh, use his his uh, um, uh, his charisma to make all the nations uh, serve him, said no. If that involved bowing to Satan, he was not going to rule in that way. It was preparing for Jesus, who finally won his great victory through the powerlessness of the cross. It was preparing for God's church 
which was born in powerless in the hostile Roman Empire and enjoyed its most fruitful multiplication and growth through the three or more hundred years that it lived under that hostile uh, um, uh, authority. And then when under Constantine it finally came to power, God's church stagnated. God is getting a people ready to live without power. And sometimes that will mean the frustrations of um, apparent defeat. But when we serve God, he always gives us the final victory. God's people were going to have to learn what Peter had learned in Acts chapter 4, as he stood and was told by those who had the power to take his life not to speak in the name of Christ, he said, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot stop help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The only thing that will silence God's people is their death. And lo and behold, the blood of martyrs speaks. And sometimes from that position of powerlessness, thank God, there will be enormous favours to God's people. Chapters 5 and 6 return us not from the long distant world of, of, of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, but come back now to Darius, the more immediate ruler. And um, we get a description of, of uh, Darius discovering that Cyrus had given instruction for the temple to be, to, to be built and favouring God's people so that they could go ahead and build the temple. We should expect that often because it is impossible not to respect Christians who are really living with integrity. And the world sometimes recognises that and blesses them as a result. But the way that we live is not dependent upon the way that we are received. And we can't do anything about the way that we're received. We simply have to live in good times and bad without power in the same way. You know that it distresses me sometimes how much we as Christians lose sight of that and think that the progress of the gospel depends on us having our hands on the reins of power. You know, let me say, this week I have been distressed that Parliament voted for gay marriage. There are other ways of promoting the rights of people who choose a gay lifestyle rather than eradicating an almost universal and historic understanding of marriage um, from the the statutes of the United Kingdom. I I think it's a, a really bad thing, but I am not despairing. I'm not even particularly surprised. And actually, in the end, I'm not totally energized about it as an issue. It's a sideshow. 
from the point of view of the gospel. It's just another reminder that we too need to be refined and are being refined in the way that God's people were in Ezra 4 to 6. What would they do? Would they stand with integrity? Would they persevere, not becoming discouraged and um, frustrated and afraid? Or would they collapse under the opposition? What will you do? You know, it's said that um, to become a concert pianist or... Uh, indeed, to excel in any individual discipline, the most important uh, part of the recipe is 10,000 hours of practice. Over lunch, calculate how long it will take for you to be a really proficient Bible person at your present rate of reading it. An hour's quiet time a day, I think, is 30 years. I don't want you to become completely demoralized. But I do want you to see that it is well recognized that perseverance is necessary for any substantial achievement. Wouldn't it be great if every person in this room had at least by the time they reached their full maturity had practiced reading their Bible as much as a concert pianist has practiced? (coughs) Plodding, you see is an underrated activity. I'm not particularly interested in people who are bursting with gifts and with skills and um, with sort of exuberant energy in the first season of their Christian life. That's lovely. But what will make you fruitful? What will make Magdalene Road fruitful? What will make God's church in this country fruitful? Is a solid, determined commitment to follow William Carey. Pursuing, following a particular pursuit. Day after day. Step after step. Plot after plot.